So welcome to the class. We are looking at uh, 1 Corinthians, and we are finishing up today the first major section. We are looking at uh, um, beginning here on uh, 4 6. And uh, before we do that, there's always this quiz that we have to take. <laughs> so, number one, Paul compares the church at Corinth to a farm. Yeah, he uses that illustration. The church is like a farm. And uh, Apollos and I are like people who work on the farm. <clears throat> I planted, <coughs> Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So he uses that illustration of the farm and uh, the building. Number two, Paul says that Apollos laid the foundation of the church. I just kind of answered that. No, Paul says, I planted, which is the foundation. I planted, I laid the foundation. Then Apollos came along le- later. He taught the church. Uh, he built on the foundation, and that's what Paul is concerned about. Remember, how you build on that foundation that I laid. You can build in such a way with wood, hay, and straw. You can build with wrong doctrine, wrong teaching, wrong principles, wrong motives that can destroy the foundation, all destroy the church. There's really no gospel-preaching church left in the end. Uh, I answered number three. <laughs> Number four, faithfulness is the most important quality of God's servants. Right? Or no? Paul says it's required, you know, that King James old verse, it's required in stewards that a person must be found faithful. So Paul says, uh, the thing that, that I'm going to be judged on most uh, severely is my faithfulness to the task. And only God can judge that, how faithful I was to the task that God gave me to do. And ultimately, uh, only God can judge us, you know. Now, there are people in the church who have, have, who have responsibilities over us. Our pastor has a responsibility for our spiritual welfare, and he has to give an account, it says. He watches over our souls, and he has to give an account. So pa- our pastors have to give an account so there are spiritual authorities over us, and uh, we, we want to listen to their direction, their teaching, and so forth. But ultimately, <clears throat> you know, the person who's going to judge us at the judgment seat of Christ is God or Christ himself. And Paul was willing to submit to the Corinthians' judgment of his ministry. No, of course, he says, no, I'm not willing to do that. So, we are at this place in our outline... We've been looking at the problem of divisions, divisions of opinions in the church. And Paul says the reason for that is basically twofold. You have kind of a wrong view of the gospel message. You look upon it as some Greek philosophy, as some sort of uh, health and wealth thing in our day, something to prosper you, something to make you better, you know, something to be consumed on you and you have a wrong view of how the church is to operate and the leaders like Paul and Apollos what, what is their role you, and in that particular case the church at Corinth was putting too much emphasis 
on human leaders, and they were dividing up, you know, I, I follow this guy, I follow him, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. So Paul closes this section with this uh, personal appeal that we see in um, beginning in verse 6. And we see, uh, first of all, his reasons. So he's going to, the reason he's, he's making this personal appeal is because he, he is, he's trying to wind this thing up by appealing to his own example as an apostle. He wants them to look on him, look at his example, and follow that. Let's look at that. So a personal appeal, his reasons for appealing to his own example. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from the, the from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. I say with this sentence, Paul proceeds to tell the Corinthians expressly why he has been using the various analogies about the church as a building, as the church as a farm, about himself and Apollos. It was, he says, for your benefit, he tells them. Which is then spelled out more fully in the rest of the verse. Paul's main point in the final, is the final clause. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one over against the other. These things, that is, these things that I've applied refer to the various images that have made up the argument, beginning in 3.5, continuing to 4.5. Paul has gone from illustration to illustration, changing the images as he went along. But now, but, but always intending them, as he said, now says, to apply to myself and Apollos. In other words, in case they have somehow missed it, he now expressly tells them that he has been carrying on this argument with its various images about himself and Apollos, so they might learn something and, as a result, desist from their pride in persons. And what the Corinthians are to learn, Paul says here, is don't, be go, don't go beyond what is written. What does that mean? This probably means, this is kind of an expression that in Paul's day meant something like, we might say, don't go beyond what is written in Scripture, or we might say, live according to the Scriptures. You know, base your life. Don't go beyond what is written in scriptures. Live according to the scripture. So Paul is thinking about the various scriptures, especially, that he has been referring to throughout this time. Um, as he's gone through this particular passage. So, remember he's had these kind of verses in 1 Corinthians one nineteen, For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. First Corinthians one thirty one. Therefore, as is written, let no one, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. First Corinthians three nineteen. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So the final goal of this learning seems certain. The Corinthians are to stop boasting in one, he says, over against the other. So here we come to the root of the problem. It seems likely that the one here is Apollos and the other is Paul. 
Now, you remember when Paul, uh, we said, founded the church in Acts chapter 18. He came to Corinth in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey. And he stayed there for a year and a half. And when he leaves at the end of kind of Acts 18, he goes to the city of Ephesus. And he stays there. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And he stays there just a little while. And he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem and uh, then back to Antioch. And then I'll come back to Ephesus. So he does. So in Acts 18, it says he goes to Jerusalem. He reports back to the church there. He goes back to Antioch. He reports there. And then he comes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And he spends three years there. And he's writing from Ephesus. But in the meantime, when Paul uh, was on his journey from his initial visit at Ephesus back to Jerusalem and to Antioch, this man, Apollos, comes to uh, Corinth, comes to Ephesus. And he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And remember there, the Priscilla and Aquila, they help him understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. He has some knowledge about the gospel, but not a complete understanding apparently about the full ministry of Jesus, maybe his death and resurrection. So he's not he's not fully acquainted. He's familiar with John's ministry. But it talks about him there in Acts 18, coming to Ephesus, and it said he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. That word learn means something like eloquent. He was a very good speaker, apparently. So you can see where this kind of fits into Corinth. Here's Apollos, who's been trained in rhetoric. He comes there to Corinth. He kind of fits the pattern of what they're looking for. A trained speaker, a polished guy, who's able to use rhetoric and so forth. Now, it's clear that Paul doesn't blame him. You know, he has these gifts and stuff. But the the Corinthians are really apparently attracted to this kind of thing. And so he's been using Apollos and himself as kind of two sides here. And saying you shouldn't be promoting one over against the other puffed up. One shouldn't be dividing over these men because these men all have a task. Me and Apollos, Apollos and I have a task. We have different gifts. We have different abilities. And God will use us in different ways. And he'll reward us, you know. So that's the way we are. That's the way we are. You know, we're all given different gifts and abilities from the Lord. Some of us this thing or some that thing, you know. That's just the way God has designed us and designed us to be in the service for him. So um, the Corinthians are to stop this boasting. So it shows that at least some of the Corinthians were against Paul. They didn't think he measured up as Apollos did. And so they sort of in their pride began to oppose him. Verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The four that connects these questions with verse 6 indicates that Paul is about to give the reasons why those who are puffed up against him are wrong. Their pride in person reflects a lack of proper perspective and a lack of gratitude. With these questions, Paul is trying to give them an appropriate perspective. There's some debate as to how to translate this first question, which the NIV reads, 
Who makes you different from anyone else? It's related to verse 6 and their pride in relation to Paul. The question means, who makes you different? That is, who distinguishes you? Or who concedes you any superiority? So Paul is asking Corinthians on what possible grounds are they boasting in this manner? The implication is that they're boasting in wisdom, which is uh, which allows them to examine Paul as strictly self-proclaimed. So the English equivalent here probably would be something like, who in the world do you think you are anyway? You know? What kind of self-delusion are you under that allows you to put yourself in a position to judge one another person's servant? You know? Who do you think you are? So this first question Paul asked marks their attitude as sort of presumptuous. Uh, are they greater than Paul who calls himself a servant, you know? The second question marks it as ungrateful. It's presumptuous. It's ungrateful. What did you have you did not receive? And if we are honest, we will recognize that everything that one has is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. All is of grace. Nothing is deserved. And nothing is earned. Everything we have in the Christian life is comes to us by the grace of God. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. Now we serve the Lord. But we do that by the abilities He gives us. By the grace that He allows us. And He could stamp us out just like that, you know. We could be dead in a second. So everything we do, it's by the grace of God. We don't deserve any of this. It's strictly... So here's the problem for the Corinthians. They think of themselves as special, as especially gifted. So it reflects a total misunderstanding of grace. I say in this case, the Corinthians missed the point. Paul drives the second question home with a third, which assumes the answer is nothing to the second. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did? Their boasting is sure evidence that they have missed the gospel of grace. Instead of recognizing everything as a gift and being filled with gratitude, they possessed their gifts. They saw them as their own and looked down on the apostle who seemed to lack so much. Grace leads to gratitude. Wisdom and self-sufficiency lead to boasting and judging. And that's what they're doing. Grace means humility. Boasting means that one has arrived or thinks one has arrived. So Paul now is going to turn to irony, to satire, to ridicule, to show them the folly of their boasting. Who in the world do you think you are? So now we see his appeal as to his experience as an apostle. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. So as a contrast to the attitude of gratitude and humility urged by the rhetorical questions of verse 7, Paul now begins a series of contrasts between the Corinthians and himself to which shame is the only suitable response. 
With three short sentences, Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. The words are full of biting irony, attacking their own view of themselves. And not just their pride in general, but especially their view of spirituality, which reflects an over-realized eschatology. Remember we talked about that over-realized eschatology in the past, remember? We said there is a realized eschatology. Remember, eschatology is that big word which means future things, the study of the eschaton, the last, the future, the end times. And so the New Testament says we are experiencing some of those end time things right now. We're, we're not seeing the fulfillment of those. Paul uses that language, 2 Corinthians 1.22. God set his seal of ownership on us and put the Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So we don't have what is to come fully yet, but we've got a taste of it. The Spirit is just a taste of what is to come. Colossians 3.1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Well, not really. I, I mean, this is not a glorified body. I know you think it looks really good. but <laughs> You know, this is not a glorified body. You have been raised with Christ. Set your things on above. So it's, you know, it's like we've already been raised because we've been saved, we know our future, we know our destiny, we know where we're going. We should live that way. We should live in conscious of where we're going and what our future is and that kind of thing. We should have that heavenly attitude in a sense. So there is kind of a proper realized eschatology, but you can overdo it. Remember I said that's the problem with our Pentecostal friends. They think because we can have, we're going to have a perfect body in the future, you can have that perfect body now. All you got to have is faith, and God will heal you of anything. Just just get that faith now. Or, you know, you can have wealth. <laughs> Whatever, you know, you can have all this now. That's over-realized. That's, that's taking the promises that are really of the future and trying to apply them now. So, they have this over-realized eschatology. But so Paul is using irony here. Now, what is irony? Irony has two basic meanings. What we might call an ironic situation. This is a combination of circumstances or result that is the opposite of what is or might be expected or considered appropriate. For instance, an irony if the firehouse burned down. We'd say, well, isn't that ironic? The firehouse, of all places, that burned down. That's not supposed to happen. So an ironic situation is the opposite of what we expect to happen. That's one use. That's not what we have here. Here we have what we might call ironic speech, a method of humorous or subtly sarcastic expression in which the intended meaning of the words used is the direct opposite of their usual sense. The irony of calling a stupid plan clever. You know, we might say to somebody, oh, that's clever. We don't really mean it's clever. We mean it's stupid. You know, that's clever. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. Oh, that's really clever. No, we mean it's stupid. We're, we're being a little sarcastic there. That's irony. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. Light irony of this latter kind is a form of humor. Severe irony usually is a form of sarcasm or satire. That's what we have here in verse 8, where Paul says, Already you have all you want. You've become rich. You've begun to reign, you know. 
having received the Spirit, the Corinthians feel that they've already arrived. For them, spirituality means to be transported into this new sphere of existence where they are above the earthly, and especially the fleshly existence of others. Now we're going to see this in especially chapter 6 and chapter 7. Thus Paul says, already you have all you want. Not only do they boast in what is a gracious gift, but they are satiated with that gift, including wisdom. Secondly, Paul says, already you become rich, a second metaphor for spiritual giftedness. Thirdly, Paul says, you have begun to reign. The words without us mean without us having a share in it. The final sentence brings everything to perspective. How I wish that you had begun to reign. That would mean that the kingdom that we await has come and we would all be reigning. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. So Paul has not, in fact, entered the time of reigning, and neither by implication of the Corinthians. Paul's first sets forth, and Paul first sets forth in its starkest form the evidence that he and other apostles have not yet begun to reign. To do so, he uses the figure of those condemned to die in the arena. When Paul says that the apostles were put on display at the end of the procession, he's using an image drawn from the Roman triumph in which a conquering general staged a splendid parade that included not only his armies, but his booty as well. So in the Roman Empire, a conquering general who went out and conquered when Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, but all through Roman Empire, from the 500s on as they conquered Italy, some general would make some uh, conquest, and he would get a triumph. Usually this was voted on by the Senate. They would vote to give a guy. It's, you know, it's sort of like parades. You know, we had, used to have, they had parades after World War II, parades after World War One. You know, they have these kind of things. And so they would have these triumphs. You can get, you know, pictures of kind of what they were like. So the general would come in. He would be on this chariot with pulled by, pulled by four horses, you know. He would be at the front. He'd have this laurel wreath on his on him. He would often have his face painted red like that. That was supposed to be a sign of divinity. So he was supposed to be the you know he was given often a divine title or something because of his conquests and so on like that. And he would come through and uh, he would bring with him all the booty that he got, all all the stuff he brought. These this would make these men rich, as a matter of fact. They would come back with, they, they would conquer these territories, and they sort of owned them. They had the taxes, they had the wealth, and all that. They became quite wealthy as a result of this, quite powerful. But at the end of this, I couldn't find an exact thing, but, you know, they, they would bring slaves. They would bring people who they would then put into the arenas, and, and uh, who would be in the gladiatorial game, who would be put on to be eaten by animals and stuff like this. Um... So, Paul is saying, we're sort of like that. We're at the end of the procession. You think you're so wonderful, so great, you know, you've arrived. But look at us apostles. We're like those condemned to die in the arena who are in this Roman triumph at the end of the procession. 
Paul uses this imagery, he'll use it later in 2 Corinthians 2.14, also in connection with his, his apostleship. And he says, we apostles are not like the people who take the places of honor, the boxes. We don't have the box seats of honor. And it could be, many people think that the Corinthians' spiritual pride causes them to sort of look down on the apostle. He's not quite the kind of leader we think. His lack of wisdom, his lack of eloquence. The truth is that Paul is like one, Paul says, condemned to die in the arena. And that spectacle is for the whole world to see, he says. It has kind of a cosmic dimension. He's on display, he says, for the whole universe. Not just human beings, but angels are watching what's going on here as he conducts his ministry. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. Now here's this irony again. We are fools for Christ. Oh, but you're so wise. We are weak, but you are so strong. We are honored. You are dis, we are, you are honored. We are dishonored. Paul now contrasts the Corinthians and himself and other apostles with total irony. The majority of apostles were not among the wise, powerful, or honored, as we've talked about already, chapter one, but they're acting as if they were. Verse 11. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. So Paul now abandons this irony and he speaks straight to them. Verses 11 through 13 spell out in detail the dishonor that attends Paul's apostolic ministry. First, Paul can, this can be divided into three parts. One, a list of six commonplace items expressing the missionaries' deprivations and ill treatment. Verses 11 through 12a. We go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. Two, a set of three contrasts expressing the apostles' responses to his ill treatment. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Finally, an extreme metaphor of humiliation. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. We who follow Christ in this way, Paul says, do not receive the accolades of the worldly wise. We're not in the front of that triumph being pulled on a chariot. To the contrary, we are to them the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. The point is, the, the Corinthians think of themselves as rich and filled and ruling and wise and powerful. They think, they think of themselves on that chariot in the front, you know, of the procession. But Paul thinks differently. He and his fellow apostles, when he describes this, they look more like Jesus. They look more like Jesus. Then finally here, three, his appeal to his authority as their spiritual father. The argument that began in 110 is now finished. But Paul is not. The most delicate issue still remains. In light of all that has been said, how is he to reestablish his authority over the Corinthians? 
Remember, that's the, that's the situation we have here. <clears throat> They've been elevating these human leaders too highly, but on the one hand, Paul is an apostle. He has apostolic authority. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. They are Gentiles. They are under him. He has authority to command their action. So how does he reestablish his authority? Well, it involves another change of illustrations. The imagery of the father and children has these ingredient these ingredients that he can use to kind of reestablish his authority. So it continues this father and son father and children relationship will continue the elements that are important that he founded the church therefore he has authority as their father over them a father can admonish correct his children he can urge that they change their behavior and if all else fails a father can discipline his children and Paul will threaten that at the end here verse 14 I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. In light of the irony and sarcasm of the preceding paragraph, how can Paul now deny that he was intending to shame them? You know, <laughs> it looks like he is trying to shame them. And the very fact that he denies, I'm, I'm not writing this to shame you, means he realized they should have been ashamed. You know, I'm, I'm not really writing this to shame you, though, you know, you should be ashamed. But that's not the reason, he says, the real reason for what preceded. It wasn't to bring out shame. The actual purpose, he says, is to warn you as my dear, dear children, to admonish you. This is that word that Pastor Ken likes to use a lot, nuthetao, you know, the nuthetic counseling and stuff. To admonish you, to correct you, to warn you, to bring about a change in being. That's why I'm doing this. Verse 15, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So having called them as dear children, verse 14, Paul proceeds to remind them that he is their father because he gave them birth in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He also emphasizes that his relationship to them is unique in this regard. He is their only father. We might translate the first part of verse 15 this way. Even though you may end up having countless thousands of guardians in Christ, at least you do not have many fathers. Now this is not intended to be a put down of the Corinthians, of the teachers. Paul has not put down Apollos at all here. He hasn't blamed Apollos. Paul has spoken favorably about these other teachers. But this is intended primarily to distinguish his relationship with them to others, the relationship of others to them, including Apollos and, and Peter, as he's mentioned. But also to distinguish him from others in the church who are influencing the church in a rather wrong direction. He says, I have this unique relationship to you as a father, you may have a lot of other people who are trying to help you and all that, but I have this unique relationship, and that gives me special authority and responsibility. Verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. 
these verses now takes the this this verse now takes the father child imagery a step further. Since the Corinthians have but one father, <clears throat> Paul who gave them birth in Christ Jesus through the gospel, he urges them to imitate him. So it means to internalize and live out the model that has been set before one. You know, imitate me. Live out, internalize what you've seen in me and live that out. And the immediate context for that imitation is what Paul has just said in verses 11 through 13, in which Paul, you remember, described his own life. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That's the basis for this imitation. He wants them to live in harmony with these kinds of things, which is in harmony with the gospel of a crucified Messiah that he's talked about. Verse 17, For this reason I sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul's concern over the Corinthians' behavior expressed in the preceding verses, especially his desire that they follow his example, is now given as the reason for Paul having sent Timothy to them. So Timothy's one task, Paul says, is to remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus, this way, so that they might imitate him. Some of you, he says, have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. In the context of his own anticipated coming, Paul concludes the long section begun in 110 by sounding a warning directly as the troublemakers in the church, at the troublemakers in the church. The word some of you become arrogant indicates at least two things. First, the trouble that Paul has been having comes from within the church itself, not from outside the church, not from outside agitators. So some of you have become arrogant. So it's an inside problem. That's a little different in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, eventually there are outsiders who come into the church and cause problem for the Apostle Paul. But right now, it's people from the inside. Some in the church are decidedly anti-Paul. Second, although the entire church has been infected by this problem, probably in varying degrees, the instigators of the trouble are a smaller group among them. They have had considerable influence on the entire church, so the majority are on the side of these malcontents, maybe, or at least are being influenced by them. Now, at the end of the argument, Paul singles out the ringleaders and threatens them with his own coming. So he's pointing to particular ringleaders. Some have become arrogant, these people have despised Paul, despised his understanding of the gospel, his theology. And to the degree that the whole church has tolerated this or adopted this unchristian behavior, they're at fault. 
So the letter is addressed to the whole church here. Because the whole church has got a problem. And if they've listened to these people and adopted this, then that's a problem. But continually, as we've seen throughout this epistle, there's tension between some and the whole. Some of you have become arrogant. Paul adds this qualifying phrase, as if I were not coming to you. His failure to return after some years had caused some of them to treat him with contempt, as if he were not coming back to them at all. And, you know, that's a problem. Remember we said that Paul established this church in Acts chapter 18. That was probably in the fall of A.D. 50. He left in the spring of A.D. 52. And now he's writing this epistle. This is some years later. Paul actually doesn't return until A.D. 56. He doesn't return for about four years, so that's a long time, you know, to come there, establish the church, and, uh, you know, you don't show up, you know, uh, for a while. It's, it's, uh, now he does, he, he, it could be that he makes a short visit over there that doesn't go very well, and that's, we won't go into that, but that didn't help things either. Um, verse 19. For I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So the sending of Timothy and this letter might have the force of playing right into the hands of the arrogant. So Paul quickly affirms his own plans to return to Corinth. The details of this plan are in 16, 5 through 9. Um, Paul says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do want to see you For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So, uh, as I say, that passage here indicates that very soon is a relative term when he says here, I will come to you very soon. Excuse me, he qualifies that here and says, you know, This is my plan. I want to come to you. I want to go through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you. But right now, uh, you know, I have an effective door open for me. Now, we know what does happen. Paul is in Ephesus here. And there's Corinth on the other side of the Aegean over there. We know ultimately that in Acts chapter 20, Paul does set out for Macedonia. Uh, after what happens in Acts 19. If you remember in Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus there for three years, but there is that riot, remember, that comes in in Acts 19 because the the people who make the silver shrines there for the goddess, they get all upset that Paul's gospel ministry is destroying their livelihood. There's this big ruckus, and they take them 
They bring Paul to the theater in Ephesus and they shout for hours, Great is Diana and the, the, the goddess, Latin goddess Diana of the Ephesians. Or, you know. so, so Paul has to leave. He does leave. He sets out for Macedonia. He goes to Troas, we know. And then he goes on to Macedonia. And then finally, Acts chapter 20, 2b through 3, he arrives in Corinth where he stays three months. So he does get there, but that's AD 56. So it's some time. It's about four years. <clears throat> and while he's here in, uh, in Corinth, um, in AD 56, he writes the epistle to the Romans from this particular location. So I say the, ref- the, the reason for the emphasis on the, cert- on the certainty of his coming is expressed in the last clause. Then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are t- talk, but what power they have. When he returns, will they have merely talk or will they be able to demonstrate the power of the Spirit in their worldly wisdom? <clears throat> they claim to have the Spirit. Will they evidence for Paul... Will, will they evidence what for Paul is the crucial matter, namely that that powerful dynamic presence of the Spirit among them? And how do you display that power? It's the power to save and sanctify. If you want to see the power of, of if we if we want to say our church has the power of the Spirit, we've got to see people saved and people being matured. That's what Paul means by the power of the Spirit. He doesn't mean miracles. <clears throat> he means the salvation of people and people being matured in Christ. And there's not much danger <laughs> that when he comes to Corinth, he's, he's not too worried about seeing a lot of sanctification going on. As we'll see in the very next chapter, there's a case of incest in the church. And they're just letting this happen, you know? There's not a lot of spiritual maturity as we see in this particular church. What do you prefer, he says? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? With one further use of the father-child illustration, Paul concludes with the threat of discipline, which the church is in no danger of exercising among themselves, as what immediately follows makes clear. What do you prefer, Paul asks? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? He says, do I have to come with a father and mete out discipline? And Paul has apostolic powers. You know, remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira (laughs) when they met the apostle Peter? You know, he's not just emptily talking here. He can mete out discipline. Or will you allow this letter and Paul's come, uh, Timothy's coming? You know, Are you going to allow this letter and the coming of Timothy that I'm sending to serve as the inducement to correct your behavior? In that case, he says, I would love to come in love with a gentle spirit. So with these words, the long argument of um, one... 10 through 421 is ended. I mean, Paul has been weaving in and out of various topics, but he's had one major concern, to stop this fascination with wisdom on the part of the Corinthians that has allowed them to boast, to oppose Paul and his gospel. And so with a variety of turns, the argument we've seen that Paul sets forth his gospel over against their wisdom, 
He tries to reshape their understanding of the ministry and the church. At last now he reasserts their authority, his authority over them. And the clear, the clear idea here is they have no choice but to heed what he is saying. Their behavior needs shaping up. Their theology needs shaping up. And uh, so Paul is finished with that. And from now on, he's going to address some items that have become known to him. In chapters 5 and 6, these are things that have just been communicated to him. We could say communicated by common rumor. He says, I've heard, I've been informed by reliable witnesses that there's incest in the church and you're taking each other to court over these little petty things before pagan rulers. And so we'll deal with that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths that we've seen today. We pray that uh, we might, in our own lives, seek to imitate what Paul says about his own life and how he followed in the example of Christ. Give us that kind of thought and spirit and desire. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.